1: On today's podcast, I continue my rewatch of the final season of The Leftovers with a deep dive on episode two entitled Don't Be Ridiculous. My name is Lazy Ass Magician and you're listening to Big Squid. you for joining me today as we dig into a new episode of The Leftovers. There's a lot to get into, so I'm going to get to it ASAP. But just before I do, wherever you are, I hope you're looking after yourself and you're doing okay in these crazy times. Uh, We've all gone through different types of lockdown and we've gone through them at different points. I know there's a lot of people in Sydney who are going slightly Crazy at the moment, and uh, you know, as one of those people who is also in lockdown, I'm doing all right. I'm actually fine. I keep just trying to compare it to what other people have been going through. It doesn't mean that there aren't challenges at certain points. I uh, I got angry at someone who probably deserved to be. I, I I should have been annoyed with them, but I got angry with them. So it's funny how these things pop up out of nowhere, but uh, knowing that I'd kind of gotten angry when it probably didn't quite need that type of emotional response made me think, uh, you know what, maybe you're feeling a bit afraid as well. So uh, just a shout out to everyone out there. I hope you're looking after yourself and I hope you're feeling okay. I'm um, If, look, I'm, I'm hoping that you're finding the experience of watching The Leftovers uh, for the first time or again to be quite cathartic. I find uh, that the series is so amazing in all the different emotions that it taps into, and I find that it helps me move through all of the different places that my head goes in in subtle and obvious ways. So... I hope it's having a positive effect on you as well. I loved this episode. I love all the episodes, but this one is Nora. Ah, wonderful Nora. So let's not mess around. I want to talk to you about this surprisingly beautiful and sad episode of The Leftovers. This one's called Don't Be Ridiculous. I need to go to Australia It's for work. Do you mind if I
0: borrow this? I need something to read on the plane. You're busting my balls? Can holy balls be busted?
1: <laughs> on
0: the seventh anniversary, a great flood will come. You're scared. I am. I have $20,000 in cash strapped to my money. You <sighs> got anything else you want to tell me about? Maybe.
1: Everything in my life, I've done for a reason. There has to be a reason. Why?
0: My daughter might still be alive. Tell me I'm crazy. These are crazy times. Storm's coming.
1: We open on the city centre for Jardín, It is the middle of the night and Edward, the man atop the pillar in the middle of the city, peacefully looks out at the night sky. It is quiet. Even the people in their tents are asleep. Edward looks around and then suddenly dies, falling forward and hitting the ground. We see Nora is at her job and she's asking questions. These are the questions that ascertain whether someone truly departed ...or is trying to scam the system. And we recognise the woman Nora interviews. This is Sandy, the woman who gave money to Matt outside in the camp... ...when he needed to find a way to take Mary back into the town of Miracle. Sandy is answering questions about her husband. Her husband was the man atop the pillar, Edward. Nora believes that the reason he lived up there and never came down... ...is because it was his elaborate way of coping with the world... Sandy doesn't believe this at all. She believes her husband wanted to suffer. Heck, he wanted to be crucified and she would have done this for him if she hadn't been arrested with one nail already in his foot. Sandy points out that her husband never wavered and that he wanted to prove himself to God. And last night, he got his reward, she says. Nora returns, Sandy's stare and asks if she actually saw her husband depart. Sandy confirms that she did see it happen, and not only that, but it was beautiful. Nora is sceptical, but the wife swears that she wasn't the only one to see this happen. So Nora interviews people who were in the general vicinity. One woman didn't see it happen, but can't work out how Edward would have managed to find his way down. Another believes he just popped, like a bubble. A different woman claims that there is going to be another departure on the 14th and the reason Edward already departed is because he was closer to God. Then someone lets it slip that Sandy had been spending time with the town preacher. Nora goes to visit Matt and she wants to know where Edward went. Matt claims that he departed but Nora knows by his response that he is lying. Matt changes tact. He points out that the wife lived for three years outside in the camp, just so she could be closer to her husband. Then, when she could finally make it inside, she lived right next to the pillar, even though Edward never looked down to Sandy, not even to acknowledge her. Matt reveals that he respects her devotion. Nora listens to Matt and rightfully points out that this is what he did for Mary. He sighs. Edward had a heart attack and his wife brought him to the church to give him a Christian burial and asked Matt to make a promise. By hiding where his body has gone, this adds a level of validity to his time on the pillar and also validates Sandy for standing by him through all of this. Most of all, Matt believes Edward deserves a legacy. So are you going to dig him up or should I? says Nora. Later, Kevin and Nora ride a cherry picker to the top of the pillar to see what he left behind. While they're up there, John Murphy wanders by and says hello. He's come to pay his respects to Edwin, especially since he was friends with Michael. Nora looks down and tells John that she loves his book about Kevin being the Messiah. John nods, knowing he's being ridiculed and gracefully moves on. Kevin attempts to talk to Nora about it and she says if you're not going to have a sense of humour about being the messiah then we're going to have a problem. Together they descend from the top of the pillar and once on the ground they give Edward's belongings to Sandy. And they see that someone has already created a shrine with a painting depicting Edward as a heavenly figure. There's even a prayer group that Nora takes offence to, but before she can tell them the truth, Kevin whisks her away. He just wants to keep the peace, and in 10 days' time, when the world hasn't ended, they'll all leave and find something else to believe that isn't true. At the hospital, Nora has her plaster removed and reveals a tattoo on her arm. After she's tested whether her arm is working fine, the doctor speaks to Nora. He doesn't want to pry or be out of order, but on the night that she came into the hospital, an orderly reported that he saw Nora slam her arm in her car door on purpose. Nora looks at the doctor, a slight smile at the corner of her mouth, her eyes blank. Why would I do that, she says, before turning around and walking away. Out in the car park, Nora answers her phone. On the other end is a voice that she doesn't recognise, a voice that says it is Mark Lynn Baker. He tells Nora that he's calling on behalf of a third party and he wants to know if she would like to see her children again. Nora replies angrily at first and says she will have the call traced, but Mark points out she doesn't need to do that. In fact, he tells her the hotel he is staying in at St. Louis and he'll be there for the next 24 hours before he'll go. Mark says, Nora, this is real. The anger subsides and soon we see that Nora is confused, lost. There is a sudden little bit of doubt in her eyes. She slips into her car and begins to think through what she just experienced, warding off the shock. She closes her eyes and knows who she has to call. George Brevity answers the phone at the DSD and commends Nora on the good work she is doing. Nora doesn't waste any time in asking George if he knows the name Mark Lynn Baker. It is a name that feels familiar to Nora. George knows exactly who it is, Mark being the actor from the TV sitcom Perfect Strangers. On the day of the sudden departure, it was reported that all four stars of the show departed, but it was revealed later that Mark didn't disappear. In fact, he faked his departure and hid out in Mexico for three years. Nora smiles. She feels empowered by this knowledge. She feels better that he is another crazy person that faked his departure. Nora gleefully tells George what Mark is up to now, that he's running a carrot stick. Even though it is last minute, George gives Nora permission to go to St. Louis and confront Mark face to face. Kevin arrives home to find Nora packing her bag. For a moment, you can see a worried look cross his face, but Nora reassures him that she is just travelling to St. Louis for work for a couple of nights. She asks if she can take the book of Kevin on the flight for some light reading. Kevin is fine with that as an idea, but also points out that there is only one copy. Nora makes fun of Matt for not making copies, and through teasing her brother, Kevin realises she is teasing him as well. But the teasing isn't nasty. It is kind of sexy, playful. We're on the same page about this, right? That this is ridiculous, she asks Kevin. He laughs and agrees. Later at the airport, Nora attempts to check in, but the computer stops responding. In particular, Nora is attempting to press the no button for the question, are you traveling with an infant on your lap? A staff member tells Nora to press the other button. It doesn't really matter. It's not like the child would be taking up a seat anyway, but Nora would rather check in correctly at another kiosk. Soon, Nora is checking into our hotel and making her way to Mark's room. She knocks on his door and hears a voice ask, who is it? You know who it is, replies Nora. I just called you from downstairs. Nonetheless, he insists on Nora saying her name before bringing her inside. They make idle chat to begin with, Mark pointing out that the hotel has a tailor on the premises and that he's never had a suit fit him so perfectly. He shows off his black suit and white shirt. Nora is polite but wants to get on with whatever it is he has to tell her. Before Mark will continue, though, he needs Nora to hand over her phone so he knows that she isn't recording their conversation. She sighs and hands it over and then is annoyed when he walks to the bathroom and throws it in the toilet. Nora is furious, but Mark points out there is nothing to worry about. Nothing that matters is down here. It's all up there in the cloud. Mark reads out some facts to Nora. He points out that they're quite scientific, so he doesn't want to get them wrong. He explains that there's a couple of different types of radiation, non-ionizing and ionizing. Within ionizing, it breaks down again into different types that are called alpha, beta, gamma, and neutron. Mark explains that neutron is really rare. It is the type you only find near particle accelerators or reactors. Yet high quantities of neutron radiation was found 48 hours later at places where the departures occurred. Now the people who discover this fact take their information and findings to Switzerland and confirm their discovery with the best physicists in the world. They give it a name, ladder. Now because that radiation dissipates, it means nothing other than it is a footprint of what once occurred. They then worked out that if they built a machine and blasted an object with that same radiation, they could make the object go. Go where, says Nora? Wherever they went. Mark replies. Nora is again sceptical because she's never heard of this group of scientists. You would think where she works, she would have at least heard of these people. Mark points out they were never allowed to trial their findings on real people because it is difficult to get funding to blast people with radiation. What a shock. So this group of scientists left Switzerland and now they're mobile. They move from city to city, country to country, working on their findings. Nora can't help herself and lets her scepticism show. Mark is not stupid and is deflated by her reaction for just a moment. He then gathers himself and tells Nora that he understands where she is coming from because he too was sceptical, but a woman known as Lauren allowed them to blast her with radiation and she went through to the other place. While Nora sits there, a memory flashes of her children rolling over her in happier times. That pain she has convinced herself she has mastered creeps back into her eyes. She isn't angry toward Mark. She's in fact empathetic. She attempts to be kind and attempts to give him an out with this story. Maybe he's not really in on this. Maybe he's being used and those poor people aren't going through but in fact they're being incinerated. Mark looks at Nora and nods. He stands up and hands her a phone. Mark explains that it'll only ring with a formal invitation and only once. He also hands Nora a USB stick with the testimonials of a 119 people who have already gone through. He points out they're not idiots and they're not victims. In fact, they have to pass IQ tests. Are you married, Mark? Says Nora. Not anymore, he replies. You? In a committed relationship? Then I'm wasting my breath, says Mark. Nora worries that Mark is delusional, maybe even suicidal, yet he pushes back, pointing out that the odds of him being left behind, that the odds that three of his four co-stars would depart, well, does Nora know those odds? Yes, she does. Of course she knows those odds. Nora lost her husband and two children. She was the one of four, just like Mark. He points out that the day of the sudden departure was arbitrary, it was pointless, and he's had enough, he wants to take back some control. Later that night, Nora settles in her hotel room for the night, she places foil over the fire alarm so she can smoke in her bedroom. She takes out the USB stick and slips it into her laptop, she begins to watch the testimonials. One after another after another, they all give consent. Alone in a hotel room, alone with her thoughts, Nora begins to be overwhelmed. The next day, Nora packs her hire car to head off, but when she types in the address in the NADSAT, it won't enter. She tries a couple of times, but in the end she gives up and drives anyway. She travels to a park and pulls up so she can watch a group of children playing, in particular a young girl. That young girl is Lily, older than we last saw her. Nora watches from the car as a young boy takes Lily's shovel And in a moment of anger, Nora gets out of the car And takes the shovel back from the boy to return it to Lily She says hello to the little girl and gives the shovel back But much to Nora's dismay, Lily has no idea who she is From behind, Lily's mum approaches It is Christine, and she gives Nora a confused hello Nora makes up a story about being in town for business And leaves as suddenly as she appeared She makes her way to the car, holding back the tears, and drives away as quickly as possible, in control. And once she is far enough away, Nora bursts into tears. When we see Nora back at the airport, she looks lost, sad. It is a different Nora to the one who first visited the airport. That Nora was self-assured, but this version is full of uncertainty. When she tries to leave the car park the machine won't read her ticket and when a car beeps her from behind Nora explodes with rage. She gets out of her car and yells at the man who impatiently beat her. She turns around and in anger pushes the barrier up so she can drive through. The anger dissipates and she looks like she is about to cry again. Nora arrives at her home and knocks on the door. She has driven to Erica's home and as soon as the two women look at each other Nora bursts into tears. Erica takes her friend in her arms and then inside where she pours a drink for the two of them. Erica notices the cast has been removed and asks how she broke her arm again. Nora brushes this question aside and says that she is clumsy. She tells Erica that the day after the departure she broke her leg and there was a picture of her on the front of the local paper with the headline, "'Nora Cursed.'" Yet as Nora attempts to laugh off the pun, her emotions betray her again. Nora looks at her and calmly asks her how she broke her arm. She knows that Nora is lying, so Nora tells the truth. She broke her arm to cover up her tattoo. She reveals the ink on her arm and says it comes from the Wu-Tang ban. Wu-Tang Clan, Erica corrects her. Nora smiles. The reason she has the tattoo is because she had her children's names tattooed there, but upon doing so, she realised people would read the names and naturally wonder who they were for. Then that would bring up the tragedy of what happened to Nora, and then these people that she just met would be sad for her. The names of her children would define who she is. When Nora realised the rod she was making for her back, she panicked and picked out the Wu-Tang sign instead, thinking that it was a phoenix. She feels like she is going crazy. She asks Erica if she is going crazy. Erica calmly points out that she isn't going crazy because her daughter died and she was able to bury her. The two women sit there together in their grief and then Erica says, I bought a trampoline. We next see the two women, the two friends jumping up and down on the trampoline, the Wu-Tang Clan providing the soundtrack for their joy. Up and down and up. And down they jump, laughing, lost in the moments where they are suspended in the sky. For a brief moment, Nora is having fun. That night, Nora drives back across the bridge and into Jarden. She's pulled over by a cop car and the officer who gets out is Tommy. He hops in the passenger seat and asks if Nora wants to go for a drink, but she's tired. She wants to take a rain check. The business trip she is returning from has taken it out of her. So Tommy explains to Nora that Christine called him. Nora justifies the trip and says that it was all about business but Tommy also points out that Nora quite clearly drove out of her way to see Lily. He explains that all Christine wants to know is if she has anything to worry about. Nora says no, everything is fine. That Christine came for her, came looking for Lily, and when she wanted her baby back, Nora didn't fight it. She didn't fight it because when she looked at Christine, she saw a woman who had lost her child. Nora gave her up, and now Lily doesn't even know who she is, so no, Christine doesn't have to worry. Tommy tells Nora the story about how Kevin adopted him when he was just three years old. For most of his young life, he believed that Kevin was his real dad. Then when he turned 10 years old, they told him the truth. Tommy then spent the next 10 years knocking on the door of his real father, a father he refers to as an arsehole. He kept knocking on that door, even though it was obvious he'd moved on. Tommy wishes they hadn't told him who his real father was because he was already where he belonged. Nora curls her lip back, angry, hurt, defiant, and replies, Do you know what I wish? I wish he'd never left her for me. Tommy looks sad and points out that he didn't leave Lily for Nora, he left Lily for his dad. In fact, at that point in Tommy's life, he didn't even know Nora existed. Nora drives straight to a place where she can have a photo printed. She speaks to an assistant and shows a photo on a USB stick and asks how big they can print that image. Soon after, she walks through the city centre and up to the pillar where people celebrate and pray for Edward, the holy man they believe departed. Nora walks past everyone and places the printed photo of Edward for everyone to see, his face covered in bruises, cuts, depressed at certain points from where he hit the ground after he fell off the pillar. As Nora walks off defiantly, Sandy calls her a heartless bitch and damns her to hell. Nora returns home and takes off her shoes. She climbs the stairs and opens the bedroom door, only to find Kevin suffocating himself with plastic. She's horrified. Kevin removes it and turns around to discover Nora is watching him. You're home, he says. I thought you were gone for a bit longer. Kevin is suddenly embarrassed, self-conscious. He explains that he tears it off every time, that he just does this to feel. But he doesn't continue the thought, instead reassuring Nora that he doesn't want to die. Nora walks over to Kevin and now it is her turn to reassure him. It's okay. Kevin doesn't need to explain. She reveals her tattoo. He suggests they should have a baby. I want to have a baby with you, says Kevin. Nora laughs. She can't cope with the irony. It's a cruel laugh. Kevin is quite clearly in pain and of course what he says is an insane thing to say at this point. But this is how Nora copes. And she soon composes herself and looks at Kevin and apologises. She asks him if he's happy and he replies, yes, he is happy. I'm happy too, she says. Let's not fuck that up, okay? Suddenly her phone rings and she tells Kevin that she has to get this. It is a work call. But it isn't a work call because it is the phone that Mark gave her. The voice on the other end asks Nora some questions and Nora replies yes to all of them. She's given some instructions on where she has to be and what money she has to have available with her. Nora gets off the phone and tells Kevin she has to fly to Australia for work. He asks if he can go with her, and Nora says yes, but her response betrays a slight uncertainty. The scene shifts and we hear the familiar sounds of a didgeridoo as we see a kangaroo hop in front of a police car and be accidentally hit. It is night time and the cop gets out of his car, sees the kangaroo is in agony and without a second thought shoots it. At the local police station, another cop watches the news as the weatherman talks about the upcoming anniversary of the sudden departure, which is coming up on the 15th of October. This cop is about to close up for the night, but his boss returns and tells him he is staying on for the rest of his shift. Just because nothing is happening now, it doesn't mean something isn't going to happen later. He knows his underling isn't psychic, so he can just stay put. The chief swaps cop cars because his is covered in the blood of the kangaroo. The chief returns home to find four women on horses waiting for him in his driveway. They ask him if he is the chief of police and if his name is Kevin. The chief replies yes to both questions. The lead woman begins to recite words to the chief. And he looked at them and raised his hand, but they did not wave in response. So he touched the stone to his chest and jumped into the water. The chief is confused, but the woman tells him she knows who he is. He replies that he doesn't know who they are, so she introduces herself as Grace Playford and informs him that she needs his help. The chief refuses, but before he can continue, one of the women shoots him with a tranquilizer dart. The chief passes out, and when he comes to, he discovers he's attached to a plank above a pool of water. The women tell him that they know who he is and that they'll see him again in two minutes. Then they dunk him into the water They watch his body flail And one of the women begins to worry that maybe Just maybe The chief isn't the right person But Grace is convinced it is Despite their worries They keep watching the chief flail about Until he stops moving The women wait And they wait And they watch And they wait a little bit longer Before one of them suggests they should get him out of the water They raise the plank Only to discover that the chief is dead ''Kevin, we know who you are,'' says Grace. ''Wake up!'' The chief doesn't move. From behind, a figure makes his way out of the house, a man on crutches who walks out of the shadows and into the light. It is Kevin Garvey Sr. He looks at the women and says, ''What are you ladies up to?'' So remember back at the beginning of season one, there were moments that I asked you to keep in the back of your head, and one of them was the perfect stranger's case.'' Then when Mark Lynn David turned up in season two, hiding out in Mexico, it felt like another hilarious beat in this initial idea. What a funny idea that the cast of Perfect Strangers departed and then it turned out that one of them had been faking it. And then we arrive here in season three at today's episode, and not only is the idea explored even further, it is one of the most emotional moments in the series. This is what I love about The Leftovers. It can take ideas and twist them around and around and around until you get every last bit of creativity wrung out of it. An idea can be hilarious and tragic a confronting moment can provide levity like Nora having a prostitute and then casually bringing it up at a dinner party with her new partner and his daughter the idea that the perfect strangers cast disappeared came from a writing workshop where writer producer Jackie Hoyt suggested it and everyone loved it so much it was added to the show that it turned into this deeply emotional moment with actor Mark Lynn Baker playing a version of himself this is an actor who was starred opposite Peter O'Toole and Michael Caine He just absolutely nails this moment and it is something I did not see coming. Let's not get away from this being a Nora episode though. I love this character so much because in many ways she feels like the most self-assured and pragmatic. She is often the voice of reason in a room. But when we see her alone, we know that she seethes with so much emotion. We must remember by this point, she has not only lost her whole family, but she's also lost Lily. And she also, as a child, alongside her brother, watched her house burn down with her family inside. This is a deeply damaged person. Losing Lily, like that is another blow that this character could not cope with. That was a custody battle she wasn't prepared to have because she knows what it is like to be a mother and lose your loved ones. Despite Nora's aggression in claiming she is fine, she's a damaged individual who yearns for some peace of mind. This is why Nora is sceptical of anyone who claims they have found peace of mind or want to attach themselves to the part the departure as a positive, the day that continues to haunt her even now. Edward dying is a catalyst for all of these emotions to boil to the surface again. And how can Nora have any sympathy for a man who ignored a devoted wife in the hope that Jesus would see him? He is a modern-day Millerite with a much stronger platform to stay up on that pillar, literally and metaphorically. Nora can't let them get away with claiming he departed because it just isn't true. And to claim otherwise is a lie, a lie that relates back to her pain. I love Nora but when she places the photo of Edward all battered and bruised from his fatal fall it is a brutal reminder that Nora can snap. This is a moment that gives her a semblance of control after her recent experiences. Once she has that talk with Tommy any piece she discovered at Erica's place is long gone. The trampoline effect is over. Nora has always appeared to be the strongest character, but there is a vulnerability that hides just below the surface. Only Nora could want her children's names to be tattooed across her arm and then immediately realize that she is opening up the potential for people to pity her, to feel sorry for her, to look at her sadly. Nora doesn't want to be treated like a victim. She doesn't want to be defined by this event, even though it is clearly uh, an event that just casts a long shadow over her. It is why she would rather break her arm to cover up the tattoo than admit to anyone the mistake she made. Kevin strangles himself to feel, to return to that place beyond where he was in complete control. Nora is convinced she is in control, and she doesn't want to feel those old wounds. She wants to cover them up any way possible so nobody can remind her that they're there in the first place. And even though Nora prides herself on her scepticism that she's able to sniff out a lie in any given situation, when she is opposite Mart, she is defanged. His sincerity coupled with the odds that three of four could disappear, odds that she understands, puts doubt into her mind. Watching the testimonials of all the people who have allowed themselves to be doused with the radiation in the off chance they can travel to that other place. Each and every one of them declaring that they are of sound mind digs deep into Nora's soul. And then technology forcing her to confront questions she doesn't want to answer or won't let her travel home to Kevin. It feels like the universe is trying to tell her something. Nora would roll her eyes if it were Matt telling her it was a message from God. But when there is something else out there that takes your loved ones away, maybe in turn it tries to send you a message that can't be interpreted by anyone else. Nora is wonderful and terrible in this episode. She can exhibit great empathy and cruelty. She is vulnerable and angry. For me, Nora is the greatest character in this series and one of the all time great characters in any TV show. Why? Because she's so real. She's every one of us. Nora is the best of us and the worst. She inspires us to be better, and she warns us that if we don't pay attention, we can also be terrible. I love this character so much, but I worry about where she is going to go next. The only thing we can count on is that wherever she does go, it will be Nora's decision. Whether it is the right decision or not, you will have to wait and see. And finally, what is happening in Australia with those women on horseback quoting from the book of Kevin while drowning another Kevin who is also a policeman? When you see Kevin Garvey Sr. stumble out of the shadows, you know that whatever is happening in this part of the world will be another manifestation of grief and the damage it can do to the world around us. (laughs) Okay, time to get to some Squid Bits. I'm recording this quite uh, later than I expected to. It's been an incredibly busy week and I've just had this episode sitting in my head, been dying to get to it. So uh, I hope um, I'm sounding full of energy. I've got energy for this, if that counts. Um, anyway, <laughs> Squid Bits, uh, the opening credits, uh, have a different theme song that we've heard before. It is the theme song for Perfect Strangers, and the episode titled Don't Be Ridiculous is the saying that the cousin Balky used to say. The Perfect Strangers joke has appeared in a few episodes, going all the way back to the second ever episode, Penguin 1, Us 0. One of the actors on Perfect Strangers, Melanie Wilson, has her birthday on... Drum roll, please, October 14th. So in the Leftovers universe, she departed on her birthday. Also, uh, just a great little touch that when we get to the Australian part of this episode, of course the departure happened on October 15th, right? We had it before them. <laughs> uh, the episode is written by The Lonely Donkey King and Specialist Contagious, which are the Wu-Tang Clan names for Tom Parada. And Damon Lindelof, you get your names after feeding your real name into a Wu-Tang generator if you haven't done this. And uh, how do I know this? Because I'm the lazy assed magician. It makes sense that Erica isn't in the series anymore because she's been able to move on. And let's be honest, there's no place on this show for people who have found peace of mind. In this episode, uh, in the episode Lens, I should say, Erica pressed Nora into being honest. Here, Nora goes to Erica and reveals that she doesn't want to lie. The appearance of four women on horseback echoes the four horsemen of the apocalypse reference in Revelations. Uh, Nora asks Edward's wife, Uh, Sandy, if her husband had any issues with his vision. This reintroduces the theme of sight, as the widow replies that her husband could see up until the bridge, which also implies he could not see beyond the town of Miracle. The doctor tells Nora she's as good as new, and then she immediately gets a call that brings back the pain of her lost children. Mark Lynn Baker is dressed in a suit that recalls Kevin's in International Assassin. Nora going to the hotel to meet a guest recalls a season one episode where she checked into a hotel as a guest in the episode called Guest. Technology constantly attempts to force Nora into a reality that she doesn't want to deal with. The kiosk wants her to say yes to having a child. The NAD set doesn't want to show her how to get to Lily. And the Barrier doesn't want her to return to Kevin. In this episode, the Aussie Kevin hits a kangaroo and doesn't care, shooting it without a second thought. In the first season episode, the Garveys at their best, our Kevin spends the whole episode trying not to kill the deer and being full of remorse when he finally has to put it out of his misery. The previous episode ended on a close-up of Nora and then this episode featured her. This episode ends on a close-up of Kevin Garvey Sr. and the next episode focuses on his adventures in Australia. The title of the episode not only refers to perfect strangers, but also refers to everyone's reactions to crazy behaviour, from Nora going out of her way to see Lily, to Mark Lynn Baker's story about neutron radiation, from Kevin trying to suffocate himself to Nora saying it is fine, and then Kevin countering with wanting to have a baby, to the four women killing the sheriff for crazy reasons. It would be fair at any point if any character had just turned around and said, don't be ridiculous. When there was originally going to be 10 episodes for this season, this episode was going to be all about Edward culminating in his death, and there was also going to be a Murphy-centric episode that was culled when the series became 8 episodes instead. The DSD has a slogan which reads, If you don't see someone, say something. This is a reference to the real-world anti-terrorism slogan, If you see something, say something. When Nora is first checking in at the at the airport, you can see a sign behind her that reads Departures. When this series was originally on TV, Carrie Coon was starring in Season 3 of Fargo and by chance played a character who also had difficulty getting technology to work. The term ladder, first reference in the pilot, stands for Low Amplitude Densinger Radiation, which is from... Dr. Denziger's report, the acronym ladder echoes the word ladder and uh, directly references the opening scene of this season with the Millerites climbing a ladder to be seen by Jesus. And, of course, you know, everything existing up in the cloud, everything important existing up in the cloud, of course, is uh, science, which is something that Nora believes in, but also kind of religious as well, if you believe it was the rapture. In real life, Mark Lynn Baker, the actor, has been married two times. In the Leftovers universe, though, his second marriage couldn't have happened because that was around the time he was hiding in Mexico pretending he had departed. What a great performance, don't you think? Like, just what a great guy. What a great performance. And, you know, just a what a stroke of genius all of this is. Nora stalking Lily reminds us of when she used to stalk her husband's lover. The character of Grace Playford is likely named after Thomas Playford, an Adelaide resident who was largely responsible for the spread of Millerism in Australia. But he probably also said Lego correctly, so we'll give him a pass. And in a nice touch, the actor playing Australian police chief Kevin is named Damien Garvey. And finally, in the book, Nora's husband texted the woman he was having an affair with and talked to her about the tattoos and admitted he once asked Nora to get one, and she refused. That brings us to the end of another podcast. Only six more episodes to go and we'll be done with our rewatch of The Leftovers, Sadness All Round. If you're enjoying the podcast, please recommend us to your friends or leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. No remote viewing party this Saturday. I think a lot of people are getting out of the house or using this opportunity to have a bubble buddy in Sydney. Personally, I'll be staying at home. I have uh, my final vaccination next Monday, so I'm just going to be a little careful this weekend. Uh, But I'll be back next week. Hopefully, it doesn't knock me around too much. I'll try to get my... You know what I might do is I might try to get my podcast stuff sorted so then I can just upload them in the off chance that I'm not great for the next couple of days. Uh, I've had a few people that I know have been really thrown and then some people have been completely fine. So, uh, probably better for me to prepare in advance in the off chance that I'm not great. Anyway, I don't know why I'm sharing all of that with you. There'll be at least two new podcasts next week for you. That's all you need to know, right? Let's finish today with a quote from Nelson Mandela that continues our look at messiahs for this final season of The Leftovers. Mandela said, I was not a messiah, but an ordinary man who had become a leader because of extraordinary circumstances. Until then.